Hello and welcome to what is, unbelievably, episode 30 of Coffee and Circuses. Fiona Hara joins me this week, a name that will be familiar to many of you out there, given that Fiona is the Secretary of the Roman Society. And if you're not a member of the Society, well, this episode will explain why you should be. Fiona discusses what's ahead for the Society, including hosting the joint Fédération Internationale des Associations d'Etudes Classiques, not bad pronunciation there, eh? and Classical Association Conference here in London next month, as well as next year's Roman Archaeology Conference, which will be held in Split in Croatia, or as many of you out there will know it, Diocletian's Palace. Exciting! She also reflects on how the society has grown over the years and the challenges it faces, such as catering to a wide range of interests its members hold, I mean, what is Roman, and the need for financial support to allow the society to carry on providing a range of events throughout the year, as well as keeping the Institute of Classical Studies library going. I mean, they've got two copies of my book now, so I mean, that should already just sell it to you. We also discuss her own research, which focuses on the very end of antiquity, with the reigns of the Eastern Emperors Anastasius and Justinian, how an interregnum trip while at university drew her to this period, and what themes remain unexplored in this area of research. As always, many thanks for joining me, especially if you managed to put up with my grating voice for over 30 hours. And now, on to the show. Now, when I I was trying to buy lunch earlier, and you're walking around like I don't know, Ooh, can't get not. lunch for under five pounds, can yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bought myself. What did I have earlier? I had like a wrap, and then I bought coffee, and that came to about six pound. And you're thinking, I'm going to be hungry again in like an hour now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should do that terrible thing of making sandwiches in the morning, which yeah. I went through phases of doing, but I never have time, so I never bother now. <laughs> uh, I usually when I when I'm down in Kent, I always uh, just make lunch at home. The only difference today was that because I stayed with my parents for the last couple of nights. And so I've come back into London today because on Saturday I was in London for a uh, one of Luke's late oh, antique yes, archaeology how conference. How was that? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, he kind of just asked me to present because I don't know if he was running out of people to present. Or something. I'm sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It was um, he just asked me to present, and I had something that I've submitted to the American Journal of Archaeology, which is kind of looking at um, why is it the Tetrarchs and other later third century emperors don't really build temples and I kind of went back to looking at the relationship between the military and the temples uh, how the patronage of soldiers of varying ranks changes over over uh, third century because they seem to like decline much earlier than they do in other spheres and actually just generally speaking I, I couldn't find much that anybody had written particularly on the relationship between the military the military sphere uh, or you want know, to the military community and, and temples, which I thought was quite odd. So I gathered a lot of data together about Britain, which was, was quite interesting, particularly obviously a very militarised province. But yeah, yeah, they seem to lose interest in building and repairing temples that are really early stayed in the, in the in relation to the military. Oh. Apart from if it's Mithras or Duke of Dolacanus, they're like the exceptions. So yeah, but that, that was all. But I used to say, like, I don't know. <laughs> it was one of those things where he was like, do you want to present? And I, well, he was like, can you present? And I was like, well, I've got something, so yes. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I didn't sleep very well the night before, and I think that was in part because I was suddenly a bit like, oh, uh, maybe I should have thought a bit more about tailoring <laughs> this to the actual kind of conference, but yeah, it, it went fine, it went fine. So I'm sure yeah. it was fine. Anyway, it's always yeah. good to have an audience to get your yeah. ideas across to. I was, I was slightly worried, though, that I was going to get the... Um, get an email back from AJA like the day before saying the article had been rejected and then you know just reviewer comments just laying into me and then I just have to stand up and present it and be like oh. well it would have been, been your chance to argue back then wouldn't it well yeah I suppose yeah, yeah, get, get that yeah. stuff off my chest I guess yeah yeah no, yeah. it's taken a while though, but then I suppose that's the same isn't it with a lot of journals sometimes oh, it can they take can take quite a long time yeah. yeah I submitted it when I did um, I, don't, I don't know if it was quite quite entirely done when I finished it in terms of like my thinking and kind of hit the limit of what it should have done but it was it was just a case that I had so much teaching coming up and then marketing that I was like well, I'm not going to work on this anyway so if I submit it now I'll at least get feedback at some point along the line to work with when I've got a bit more time exactly. so that was that was my kind of thinking and then but maybe they'll just say yes outright which yeah <laughs> maybe they will I'm sure they will I'm sure they will so is this 
a busy time for for the Roman society in general? Is there is there a lot going on? I was going to say, is summer a busy time? But I looked out the window and I don't know uh, <laughs> yeah, if it not, really, not really feels summer. like summer it's at the not moment. Really summer today. Well, it's quite a busy time because, um, especially this year, because um, we have our we had our AGM a couple mm-hmm. of uh, Saturdays ago, and that we always try to combine with um, a sort of mini conference. So this year we had uh, four papers on Roman dictators and dictatorship. So we had we had that, and then we had a joint lecture with the British School at Rome um, just last week, and then um, the, the Ian Haynes, the Ian uh, Haynes, yeah, that was something. That was some impressive stuff. That, that, that was <laughs> particularly the, the the we've got this humongous grant bit at the end. Where I was just like, how do you spend that kind of money? Like, I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we've got at the end of we've got well at the beginning of July, and um, we're doing a big conference um, on uh, saving ancient treasures for the world. Okay day conference um we do them every two years with the hellenic society um sponsored by one of our members chris levitt um and uh yeah so th- this year should be quite interesting we've got quite a lot of speakers on on um from syria and talking about you know iraq and that kind of a thing and then we end up with uh, roger bland um talking about the portable antiquity scheme um and then at the end of the day there'll be a sort of a round table discussion which i'm sure is going to be very interesting about antiquities market um and all the terrible destruction um, mm. in the Middle East um, so that should be a big, a big event um, and then um, we're involved with the FIEC Classical Association Conference oh um, that's, so that, that's yes yeah, FIEC stands for that's a um, oh that's the long French name <laughs> okay. Federation etc etc uh, <laughs> um, so I mean that's their, their they, I mean we've joined um, with them so but, I mean they have a, con- a congress every three years now which is obviously a big sort of international event with all the kind of classical associations of the of the world, and then we're joining with the classical association who postponed their normal conference from Easter to July, so that we could do a, a joint event. So I think we're expecting sort of six hundred, seven hundred or so classicists in wow. London gathering um, the 4th to the 8th of July <laughs> and the Roman Society with the Hellenic Society and Classical Association and the ICS, the London Colleges are also the hosts uh, so um, we've been involved quite a lot with the organisation of that um, and I've done quite a lot with the, with the planning and the Roman Society has its own panel um, that we're doing on sort of the history of the Roman Society and the contribution of the Roman Society to the sort of development of Roman studies in the last century or so. Um, so we've got Tim Cornell, our president, um, and Werner Eck, who's one of our mm. honorary members. And then Catherine Steele, who used to be the editor of the JRS, and Hella Eckhart, the current editor of Britannia, talking about the contributions of the journals to sort of the study of Rome, well, Rome, the Roman world, while the journals have been uh, so. The, and because Britannia is um, celebrating its, will have its fiftieth volume this year, mm. later this year. So, uh, sort of the development of the study of Roman Britain and archaeology in the last fifty years. So, yeah, so that should be a good, a good panel. <laughs> mm. I'd like to make a style conference, as we were talking about earlier. I'm unemployed now, so I don't know how much I But I, because um, I saw there are a few other um, individual events going on connected to that, like the ancient world and silent film. And yeah, I still want to see uh, there's that's, a couple that's other right, things yeah. as well. So, I mean, Maria White, who does all this work on the, the reception of classics in, in film. So, the Bloomsbury Theatre, Saturday night, she's doing a sort of screening of these silent films with a sort of live piano playing yeah so that should be a that should be a nice event and then the various excursions sort of mainly aimed at those coming from overseas who wouldn't normally have the opportunity and we've got some um some postgraduates doing sort of tours of the british museum the vna the museum of london and then there's a there's a sort of a dinner at senate house on the sunday evening so lots of things going yeah, on yeah yeah Alongside the just general lot, running of the society lot, as well, lot, yeah. alongside well, alongside all the other panels in the in the conference, yeah. yeah so yeah, so generally it's busier than it might be at this yeah, time. Of the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the yeah. Year. It's strange in the lead up to track um, when we were hosting at that at Kent the other month. 
just getting closer and closer to it, it did feel a little bit like, Wah! but then when you actually get to it, it's quite rewarding. And then it's very strange as well. Like the week after track, I had kind of almost say, um, like a boxing day feeling going on for a while, you <laughs> yeah, know, this kind of thing. The adrenaline sort of calms down. And yeah. then <laughs> it was a very strange kind of sensation. Like we were very happy how the conference went, but then suddenly it was like, Oh, where'd everybody go? Like, you know, it's suddenly like yeah, everyone's and here, and then they're all they've all gone. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly, like, there's not so much kind of onus of like you're not trying to juggle all this organisation and stuff, and it's a relief, but it's also a little bit like, oh wow, like it's, it's already done, like yeah, whole year, and then something like it's over in a flash. Yeah. Well, we're of course we're starting to organise quite now, quite seriously the. 2020 rack and track too mm. um, in split so mm. um, there's been quite a lot of quite a lot of organisation for that going on yeah. already um, we're going to be ho- hopefully making making it to there I can't really say I can't really say no when it's Diocletian's Palace I'm exactly. not I've not exactly. been so as, oh, as a... well and it's a totally fantastic place yeah. so um, I mean all of the venues for the conference are all sort of within Diocletian's Palace so if you haven't been it's a really yeah. great place to visit I hadn't been until last year when I decided that I needed to make a couple of trips to check it out <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure it would all run smoothly yeah I feel, I feel like as a, as a late antique person well I'm, I'm expecting hopefully there will be a few panels at least like or at least something possibly even I guess maybe related to Diocletian that would be quite fitting I don't know if that yeah, will yeah no I'm sure, I'm sure I'm sure there, there, there is a plan that there should be some some Diocletian related <laughs> panels or talks no definitely definitely and I think they're hoping that you know quite a lot of the panels will have an element of archaeology about with the Balkans so mm. that you know at least it will be topical location wise so yeah no it should be should be a good good event yeah I mean talking of the late antique period because that's your own kind of focus I mean you go a bit further forward than Diocletian you wrote I I think that's I think Diocletian's quite early (laughs) (laughs) there's all those questions about when does late antiquity start and sometimes sometimes I get the feeling that the date changes depending on if you're using the term late antiquity and you just want to make it fit I mean you do get people that say late antiquity starts with what the Severans or sometimes I've seen it used even earlier I tend to I tend to think late antiquity is either start of Diocletian's rule or possibly the start of Constantine's rule yes I I would definitely be going for Constantine I think because obviously because I work on the 5th and 6th century and that to me is really the core of the late antique period just before we get on to sort of the Byzantine period, whenever mm. we want to define that that starts. But probably after sort of the... I see the reign of Justinian as a, as a bit of a turning point there yeah. um, between late antiquity and Byzantium. I mean, Constantine, I think, is a there's a definite sort of sense of transition period there. But I mean, most quite a lot of the work that I've done has been on sort of the transition and sort of transformation of the city and festivals and religion and that and literary culture in the fifth to sixth century. So that's really what I'm most interested in. But that's probably quite late for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's, uh, I suppose everything's always a constant state of. Uh transformation I mean because I guess like that's why we use the term lay antiquity is that kind of bridging gap between the ancient world and the, and the medieval, medieval period world, yeah. so it, I, I guess there is probably an argument to made like trying to put like dates on it it's always going to be like difficult to come I keep using this term comes up on the podcast several times compartmentalizing right. history and, yeah. tr- and and trying to avoid that too much but uh I guess actually maybe, maybe a better way of putting it is it's too eastern for me like because I've done <laughs> well that's, yeah, yes, that's the other, yeah, the other sort been, of boundary isn't yeah because I've been looking like, especially teaching wise I've taught a lot on the transformation of the Roman West into successor states like the Ostrogoths the Vandals etc uh, um, my my knowledge about the East is perhaps not so wide wide ranging although I mean you know I know my, you know, Justinian and, and I mean yeah. you can't not know Justinian to some degree I suppose but because yeah. uh, you've currently got a book coming out on Justinian well, right? I'm still in the process <laughs> of writing the book yes it's uh, it's uh, a book on Justinian for so Edinburgh University Press which have a debates and documents um, series so um, it's the book on Justinian in that series 
Um, so um, the, the first half is meant to be not, not just a narrative of his reign, but sort of the current, the current debates, which when you spend a long time writing the book, it's quite difficult because mm. <laughs> when I started a few years ago, um, you know, the debates have moved on. <laughs> so um, it's sort of hard, hard to keep up because there's such a lot of work being done on all these different aspects of Justinian um, and because it's a general book on all aspects of his reign you know there's so much being work, work being done on sort of well late late we might call late antique Iran but you know Persia and the Arab tribes at that time and then all of the western stuff and you know, religious policy and then, you know, the laws and then all of the sources. The number of conferences which have been held on Procopius Mm. alone in the last few years is just amazing. So it's kind of quite hard to keep up with current current trends. Do you think that in the last, I don't know, 10... 10, 15 years or whatever, has there been like a real growth in that that area? I mean, obviously, like when you go back to Peter Brown kind of coming up, I suppose, with the concept of late antiquity. I don't know if that's that's quite right to say, but but (laughs) obviously since then there has been a real kind of growth in that area of looking at the later empire that there wasn't um, and the transition to what comes after that there wasn't in the past. Do you think there's this kind of like you can draw like almost a curve that's going like increasingly upward, like steep gradient of like more and more people working on it as it's... Yeah, I mean, I think, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there was, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. So when I, I, I started in an, an, um, an MPhil in Byzantine Studies in Oxford and then my DPhil, and actually at that time there was this big trend of people starting to become really interested in late antiquity, at least in the sense of, you know, university courses being set up. And there were kind of quite a lot of UK universities that started you know, introducing courses around late antiquity. And actually, unfortunately, that trend hasn't really developed as much as I think a lot of people hoped. So it's sort of stayed on a level, or in some cases there's a bit less late antiquity being done in in some places. Um, But, I mean, I think... But in general, people studying late antiquity, sure, although I think that, you know, there are some, you know, there are some... You know, obviously, Justinian attracts a lot of attention, um, and you know, other sort of key emperors or key themes, I guess, um, people kind of gravitate towards. But then I think there are still kind of quite a lot of pockets of research which people aren't really doing. So, I mean, I'm quite interested in because I wrote my thesis on and my book on the Emperor Anastasius, but I'm quite interested in the time just before that and Zeno, the Emperor Zeno. And a little bit of work's now been done on Zeno. Mm-hmm. Just to um, quick so, side note, so when I was at Luke's conference on yeah. Saturday, Hugh Elton was presenting oh, on was Zeno yeah. and yeah. the Isaurians, like the impact, because yeah. it was about relating imperial rule to manifesting itself in the archaeology yeah. so looking at the relationship between the, the Isaurians which I always think makes them sound like they've come out of Star, Star Trek um, <laughs> and, and uh, what's going on like up in Constantinople in particular like the relationship between the two because Zeno himself is a Isaurian he's an Isaurian yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and very unpopular in Constantinople well at least some sources would say it's very unpopular because, because of that and yeah I mean he's one of the few people who has really worked on Zeno and the Isaurians and in fact I went to um, Alahan, when he was the director of the British Institute at Ankara, when he was working there, and you know that's all that's very interesting. But in, ter- in contrast to sort of the sorts of work that people are doing on Justinian mm. or sort of other periods, um, you know, there's not there's not so much being done. There's still, I think, quite a lot of you know Anastasius rule for you know a very long time, and again. You know, although actually there's another book on Anastasius now as well, but you know, there's still kind of quite a lot that people could say about this transition, the, the you know, turn off the fifth, sixth century. So, although um, there are sort of these kind of pockets of work that people are doing, there's still lots of lots of gaps, and of course. I think it's one of the challenges is that there are so many sources and so many sources, non-Greek and Latin sources. So, I mean, and and many of them haven't yet been translated into mm. English, which, of course, is important these days because, you know, not everyone has got perfect Greek and Latin. Yeah, well, it's interesting <laughs> so, uh, when uh, uh, Matthias, one of my colleagues at Kent, was on the podcast, he was talking about 
the text that you get in things like Ethiopian as well. Like the the there are so many texts, particularly as you go into late antiquity, which aren't in, in Greek and Latin as well, which people yeah. haven't necessarily given as much attention to as well but then there's only obviously a very small number of people perhaps around that can actually at the moment translate them as well exactly i mean there's so many greek and latin sources that haven't been translated but then there are the syriac sources Mm. and armenian arabic and coptic (laughs) um so it's kind of quite hard to um it's quite hard to kind of get a full picture of what's going on and i mean also i mean there's you know all these kind of legal texts and there are all these letters and collections of letters um, between bishops and popes and all of that Um, and again they're not really very easily accessible so I think it's quite difficult for well especially students sort of choosing to to study that um, to actually get to grips with all the material Um, so I think that's that's a bit of a challenge for the for the future I mean the 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 series of Liverpool um, translated texts is great um, because it's suddenly making all of these texts accessible but you know it's pretty slow because there are so many of them and not that many people mm. to translate them so the, I mean part of the, um, the, the the Edinburgh this series of debates and documents I mean the second part of the book is a collection of documents um, you know, obviously translated into English so some of these will be Syriac and other languages translated okay. into English so at least there'll be a sort of body of texts um, which should be easily accessible um, about the reign of Justinian when I finish it yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's interesting as well actually because when uh, I was at the conference on Saturday Ken Dark was presenting on his work in uh, Istanbul uh, Constantinople yeah. and he was just talking about the sheer amount of archaeological work that's undertaken there which is just never published um, he was like, saying yes to like track stuff down. In, like, in one case, it was a, um, a letting agent or whatever, and like one of their guys, like they gave a plan of a building that this building was underneath like the modern block. Uh, it was like, basically a cellar, and it was like from you know, from Justinian period Constantinople or around that kind of time. And uh, that's the only extant plan that's ever been made of it. it was, and he was saying there's all these excavations undertaken there that aren't published as well. So do you think there's that that kind of maybe exists then that there that like with the text with the archaeology that there's perhaps a significant kind of imbalance that exists between in comparison to say what happens like when people look at the West as it kind of moves into late antiquity yeah I mean I know that there are well I mean Ken's done I know a lot of work in Istanbul in trying to track down these sort of um, but I mean it's like I mean I guess it's like archaeology in in any of these cities where anyway it's mostly undercurrent Building, so it's rather mm. difficult, um, and then of course you know it's it, it, it's difficult excavating in a in a in a different country <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah, and I mean of course late antique sites, which which are predominantly late antique and have been excavated properly, then that's fine. But of course lots of of the old sort of you know classical sites that had late antique layers. I mean, a lot of that in early excavations when people weren't interested at all in late antiquity. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, upper layers were often kind of destroyed in a, in a hurry to get down to, you know, what they thought was the most interesting classical stuff. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's another issue as well on that. Mm. Something that happened a lot in this country as well. And then, yeah, I suppose across... The, a lot of um, Western Western examples as well. Yeah, 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 I found that like looking at some of the uh, Mithraic stuff from the the fourth century, mm. like particularly like in the surrounding area, it's very difficult to build up a picture as to what's going on because everyone's just kind of particularly in our older reports, just hacking through stuff. Yeah, and stuff get, get is, down to the interesting... <laughs> yeah, like my empire or whatever. Exactly. Things being dated by, like, a single coin of Valentinian that nobody knows where it came from for, for the later levels. But, uh, so to kind of go back a bit then, um, as you say, you're at Oxford. What, but what initially drew you to studying like, classics and then on to the likes of Byzantium? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I... Well, I'd done Latin at school, um, and so um, I just... And ancient history, um, so... And I was generally interested, so that's why I decided to do a classics degree. Although, in fact, I had originally been going to do Latin and English, but anyway, I got a place to do classics, so I took that. 
Um, and then, um, in fact, I um, it was really a, an interrailing trip in, I think, my third year, okay. summer of my third year. And in fact, I'd never been abroad before. <laughs> um, but I went on this month's interrailing trip with a couple of friends and we, um, well, we, we travelled to Greece and then we worked our way back to Europe. And when I got to Greece, I, I didn't know anything about the later period, didn't know... Didn't, if I'm not even sure if I'd really knew the term Byzantium, but yeah. anyway, I I saw all these. Um, I mean, apart from the kind of classical stuff, but anyway, I saw these Byzantine churches for the first time, and I was just really taken by the the um, frescoes and the mosaics, which I thought were just lovely. Um, and we went to um, there's a um, the Daphne Monastery, which is just outside Athens, and it's got this amazing um, image of the Pantocrator. I just thought that was really, really outstanding. And, and, and I just never come across anything like it before. So um, I went back to Oxford and I thought I was quite interested in this later period. So I thought I would do the latest paper that I could on the classics degree programme, which for greats was the Confessions of St Augustine, which wasn't really Byzantine or yeah. <laughs> late, but anyway, it was the latest, latest paper. So I did that paper with... Um, uh, with Roger Tomlin, and I, I mean, I enjoyed that. Obviously, it was a early, earlier. Well, we might say late Roman, but <laughs> anyway, Oxford was just setting up. Well, it had been running for a couple of years. These masters in Byzantine studies, so I decided to do the MPhil in Byzantine studies. So, which was partly a taught course, and. Um, so the people, I think there were about three of us doing this course, and because I'd done classics first, and the other two had done, I think, modern history. Because if you're going to do Byzantium, you've, you come from one or other direction yeah, and converge yeah. in the in the middle. And they they did all the kind of late papers, which turned out to have these beautiful art and archaeology sort of and all these lovely frescoes which I thought you know was the sort of partly the reason why I decided <laughs> to do it um, and because I'd done classics I did all the earlier papers or at least the kind of up the 5th, 6th century papers and, and, and Justinian so in fact I um, didn't really end up working on any of those things as I've seen in Greece <laughs> and then I and then I I wanted to do something for my thesis, which no one else had really looked at. So, although there there had been a book on the Emperor Anastasius um, in Italian, published in the sixties, so I thought I'd write a sort of um, biography of him, looking at certain aspects of his reign. So I did that for my MPhil thesis, and then I turned it into a DPhil by looking at the rest of his reign and adding those bits, um, which I then turned into the book. A few years later, so um, and now I still like going to listen to papers, and I still like going to look at lovely um, <laughs> frescoes in Byzantine churches. But actually, I never worked on them. So, <laughs> did you? I'm <laughs> guessing at, at some point you made uh, made the trip to uh, Istanbul to see to see Hagia Sophia. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been to I've been to Istanbul um, a couple of times. So yes, I've been to Hagia Sophia. Yeah, yeah. Were you yeah. were you overawed by it, or was there kind of a sense of I don't know? Because sometimes I I mean, obviously. You going to Isophia and you're like wow and the kind of colossal scale of it but sometimes there's something about those smaller churches as well that it's almost when you've got something like constant uh, when you've got something like the Isophia I think uh, it has that kind of sense of it loses kind of the intimacy of some of the other churches you get where like every single wall is painted on yeah. the inside yeah I mean Isophia is amazing but then well of course so many of them have been were turned into mosques so but I mean you know just the, the history behind it so you know that's fascinating when I went to Istanbul I was really I, I'd, I'd really struggled to sort of understand especially sort of looking at emperors like Anastasius and then Justinian sort of how his power in the capital or sort of his court could, would actually work so I was really interested in sort of the sense of the geography between the Hippodrome and where his palace had been and where the church was and how you know, he would have got to, from one to the other and how all these, you know, processions would have worked. So, I mean, actually going there and actually working out how that would have worked was really important to me. But, I mean, in terms of the the churches, I mean, sure, I mean, it's often these... I mean, the, well, I mean, the church at Cor- the Cora Church in um, Istanbul's, you know, fantastic because it's got all these amazing, amazing frescoes. But even... 
tiny churches dotted around in the countryside or wherever. Um, I mean, I also, I mean, well, um, at the end of the 90s, I had a trip to Syria and, you know, I, I mean, they've got some fantastic, well, obviously, many fantastic <laughs> sites, but there are um, there are all these amazing, amazing small churches which are still, still standing and... I mean, obviously, these around sort of um, around Aleppo, where you've got all these the, the so-called dead cities, where you've got all these late antique ruins and churches, and you can you can see them there. So, I mean, all of these all of these things. I mean, I'm I find it very difficult to imagine all these places. In fact, the distances and geography and how things work without actually going there. And um, so that's important. Yeah, I think that's something very important about visiting sites and getting a sense of the uh, what's more t- tangible nature of it, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, you c- it's very difficult to picture in your mind's eye reading a report or a book about something to quite get. Something about getting a feeling for a place, I suppose, as well. Like you say, things like distances as well, how far apart it is. Going back to Hugh talking at the weekend, talking about Isoria and the distance from Constantinople how long it would have taken to mm. go from Constantinople to Azura because it's across the mountains as well. Yeah. It would have taken several weeks overland. He was saying, you know, a week by sea as well. And uh, it's, I think it's difficult for us nowadays to, to always appreciate that because we're so used to just jumping a flight and go somewhere yeah. or, or even yeah. just jumping a car and go somewhere. <laughs> you know, when you're trying to travel with horses, when, like when Zeno flees uh, Constantinople... Yeah, it would have taken them some, some time to get to get down there, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And also waiting, I think, them travelling, but waiting for news as well. So, you know, these uh, you know battles that were going on in Azoria, you know, how long would it have taken the news to get back to Constantinople? But I mean that's true of any any ancient uh, battles away from the capital where you've got to wait for the news coming back. I guess yeah. not 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 instant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, you know, sometimes we just forget that is um, even though the ancient world is like us in many ways that there are things where it's completely and utterly different. Like. Uh, yeah, just not having a telephone, for example. <laughs> it, just, it just it does it completely and utterly changes the way things work. And yeah. so, like communication, like you might have a big battle that somebody's lost, and then people might not find out for a week or something. And it's actually yeah. what the results been, which must have been pretty tense waiting for a result. <laughs> um, yeah. Probably not as horrible as fighting the battle, but nevertheless, yeah, waiting for it, waiting for news on it must have been, yeah, must have just yeah been horrible to go through. So after you after you finished Oxford, did you did you come straight to King's after that? Um, or was there, yeah, pretty pretty much um, because I I had a, a two year job uh, to start with when um, Charlotte Rouchet was on leave, um, so um, I I did her job for a couple of years. Um, in as much as anyone could do Charlotte's job for a couple of years <laughs> and then I stayed um, at King's um, for about full-time after that for about five years before coming to the Roman Society. So I've been working for the Roman Society for uh, 11 years now. How did you So how did you end up becoming the Secretary of the Roman Society? Was it something where you actually, were you asked to, or was it a case that, that I, we just I came applied. up with? <laughs> <laughs> I Because obviously it seems like a quite, I don't know, it was, because you, you, you still lecture part-time at King's as but well. I still, right? yeah, I mean, I, well, I kept, yeah, I mean, I just, well, I teach one um, MA course, um, uh, in fact, the the MA um, Greek language course, because I don't. I mean, it's it's a it's a course which. Um, well, in fact, I'm so. I mean, I've taught it for all the time I've been at the Roman Society. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I can do that. I can fit that in around the Roman Society. So, so that works. Um, and it's. I mean, it's three hours a week, so it's not. It's not too much. So I do. I do that. Yeah, I do. Um, run some of the summer schools at, at King's um, as well 
and uh, yeah, and I tried to do some research. Jim, <laughs> with, with being the, the Secretary of Rome Society and all the various events that go on, do you ever sit there sometimes and think, it'd be really good if we had like an Anastasius conference yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or a Justinian conference? Like when you've heard like about Tiberius or Nero or whatever, like, do, you, do you sometimes sit there and just think, yeah, they're not quite as good as Anastasius? <laughs> yeah, of course I do. Uh, no, no, I do. Well, I mean, actually, the, the Roman Society, I think it's sort of, uh, the, you know, the wording is that, you know, we do, you know, any aspect of the Roman world up to mm. 700 AD so I, you know Justinian just kind of kind of get, gets in there I mean I do I'm quite involved there is a, a, a society for the promotion of Byzantine studies mm. too which I'm quite involved uh, with and I they produce an annual bulletin of British Byzantine studies which I edit um, and a newsletter so I do get to go to um, they have an annual symposium so I usually go to their annual symposium, so I do get to go to some, <laughs> some Byzantine. Um, and I do, I mean, I, I sti- still, not very often, but I mean, I go to conferences, usually if I've, if I've been asked to speak, then I can, then I usually um, do that. So I do get to carry on meeting Byzantinists or late antique <laughs> Because you, you edited the 410 volume as well. I did correct? edit the 410 volume, yeah. I mean, how was that in terms of... Because that was all about the end of, and post-Roman Britain. Yeah. Like, did, did you find that quite interesting in terms of comparing it with your own kind of interests in the in the East? Or? Yeah, no, I mean, it was... Um, I mean, that, that, that came out, of course, because we, we did a conference on 410, the end of Roman Britain, uh, as part of our the Roman Society's centenary celebrations in... Uh, 2010 and we wanted to have something that would mark the something t- tangible that um, that we could um, mark the centenary with so that volume came out of that conference plus I think a, f- a few other papers that we invited but sure I mean it, it was interesting I, I mean yeah I mean Roman Britain in that period isn't really my mm. <laughs> um, my thing but I mean it's interesting the, the the sort of the same questions that you ask about the, this, these questions about transformation transition or decline in Britain as to the east and it, you know some of the same kinds of themes come up but sort of two or three hundred years later in the east mm. um, so you can see the same kinds of things being being repeated um, so yeah, I found, I, found, I found that interesting, and especially I'm quite, I'm quite interested in sort of this the, the sort of which maybe isn't so relevant for the AD four ten, but that sort of questions of you know how cities are governed and how you've got one set of people governing them and then they sort of change into another set, but actually they're the same the same sorts of people really, mm. <laughs> just with different titles. Yes, all of these kinds of questions which are common to both. It was very helpful for my teaching. Oh, teach, good. Teaching okay. barbarians of the West, so... <laughs> like I'm Kent, glad. So <laughs> it, was on, it was on the reading list. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about the the upcoming um, CA conference, sort of the... FIEC. FIEC conference. FIEC. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean... Talking about the kind of the future, and, and, and obviously, so you've got your, your, the book on Justinian on the way as well. More kind of broadly, I mean, you have kind of touched upon themes that could still be addressed, but do you have any kind of like broader ideas about the subject as a whole, like the direction that it could go in? Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> it's quite a big question. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, that's quite a big question. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, with with regards to late antiquity, which I suppose is, is, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a greater building up of the picture um, using various different sources um, and, put, and, and how all of that's going to fit together, looking backwards to what I would say, the, the, the classical world and looking forward to the medieval world. Um, but there's still, I mean, uh, and, but there's just kind of quite, quite a lot of basic... Um, reading of sources and working out what actually happened as well. So I think there's lots of lots of basic work to be done as well. I'm actually working um, on another project um, with a couple of colleagues in Oxford, which is a, a Byzantine reader, uh, which is going to be a vast um, book. <laughs> 
uh, it's basically a collection of sources in the original with um, with a commentary and a vocabulary sort of linked to a Byzantine Greek grammar, which there isn't at the moment. Um, and this is supposed to be a sort of a, a kind of well, more, more a teaching aid, but also just a, a, a collection of sources, um, which. There isn't really at the moment. I mean, there obviously there are lots of anthologies of ancient Greek and Latin, um, but there there aren't so much for Byzantine Greek. So again, um, I mean, that's this is an attempt just to make material which isn't very well known at the moment, or some of which is well known but just not read, sort of accessible, and to allow students who don't have you know a lot of Greek to be able to you know read and practice on um, these texts so that's my so that's my other project in line with making material accessible (laughs) (laughs) so it's going to be a a range of texts from from all genres so you know classical classicizing histories poetry um theological works legal works from sort of the fourth century to 1453 so that's published by um cup so um but it's quite a big project so it Mm. might take a while a lot of things to juggle, isn't so, it? Really? <laughs> yeah, quite a lot of things to to juggle. Yeah. I wonder one interesting question actually yeah, that pops on. into my head. It's more, not so much about looking forward, but a bit more looking back. Is uh, you talking about like the the Roman society, like um, the the anniversary? How do you think the Roman society has changed over the time that it's been around? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, is it, no. is it is, as a body, I'm guessing, it's not quite the same as it was when it was initially formed? No, I mean, when it was initially formed, um, well, I mean, the, the, you know, the early archives are quite fascinating, you know, and as some people know, it's, you know, the Hellenic Society was founded first, 1879, and then, um, you know, there were obviously people within the Hellenic Society who had an interest in Romans, so, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, should they form a separate society or somehow, you know, join in. So, obviously, it was decided, you know, Haverfield was the, one of the kind of pioneers, and actually, it was his, his student, um, Marjorie Taylor, who then became the secretary of the society when it was formed in 1910, and, you know, there are obviously lots of academics then, but quite a lot of you know interested people who were just interested in Roman studies, and I mean that combination sort of continued. I mean I think nowadays the problem is that you know it's people in general don't often join things, and we've seen you know lots of learned societies. It's it's difficult to it's difficult to attract membership because everyone's got a lot of things to be doing these mm. days. And you know it's interesting that you know the early the early records of the society. You know you'd have for example the annual general meeting, and then a paper would be read by someone, and you know illustrated with lantern slides maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and you know and a lot of people would come to it because there were just not very many other papers going on, not many other lectures, not many other conferences, and certainly not very much travel to other places. So if it had an overseas speaker, you know, everyone would come to hear them because it was it was a really um, unusual thing. And of course now everyone goes to conferences all over the world and that's not really and, and, and if and if they can't go they might listen to it online. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I think that so the, the the sort of challenge is, you know, what would people like from this kind of a society now? So I guess that's what we, you know, that's a major question that we have to think about for the future. So we do have a lot of, obviously, most academics and or lots of students who are in London join. We do have a lot of we do have a lot of lay members who are really interested in the Roman world, and maybe that's because you know they live near Hadrian's Wall or they live near Bath and they they've seen remains, so they're interested, or they have some you know some other reason for being interested. But I think the the challenge is what to offer a variety of things which are going to appeal to all of these different. Um, constituent groups and you know some people join because they do really want to read the Journal of Roman Studies from Mm. cover to cover or Britannia and some people join because they want to use the library 
Um, some people join because they can come to events. So it's just a question of providing a sort of ba- a balance of all of these different activities, you know, and it can be quite challenging to provide something that a core of people are going to enjoy and want to and want to pay their sub- subscription for. And obviously we want to offer programmes of grants um, and bursaries. You know, we recently introduced this scheme for museum placements um, for where we give students a bursary and they have a, a place placement in a museum or the ICS or English Heritage or for two or three weeks in the summer. And, you know, that's we just finished um, arranging the places for this year's scheme. We had over 200 applications for wow. 10 places. So that's something that's very popular it's it's just a, a question of looking ahead and looking at the different things which people will want to join for or want to be interested in yeah. um, in a world where everyone's got a million things to do <laughs> and uh, you don't need to come to a lecture to find out about something because you can read about it online or you can listen to someone else speaking online yeah so it is, it, is a, it is a bit of a challenge and something that we need to be aware of in, in the future. I mean, we're also at the moment, as you might know, running this major fundraising campaign for the library. <laughs> so um, that's, that, that, that's something else that we need to, that we need to sort out because the library is very expensive to run. But mm. obviously the library is a very important part of what we do, what the societies do. Um, so it's important that we have a successful campaign to be able to keep running it at the level that we, that we currently do. I was going to say as well, I suppose, <laughs> being the Roman society... The term Roman in itself, blessing and a curse in terms of like <laughs> that conceptual kind of question of what is Roman like because there's like a million things that you, you could do and then I guess it's kind of a case of as you say it's picking the things that fit with the the, the society that appeal to a wide range of people because I guess as I say yeah when you're or you're dealing with something that's Roman in inverted commas I mean there's a whole wide range of whatever that could, could be could, so. could, could be anything and of course people are very you know you, you try to put together a sort of program of lectures in the in the year that, that's, that's balanced and so you know actually when we do lectures or conferences on Roman archaeology they're tremendously popular but then you know we also have to make sure that those who are interested in you know Latin literature or Roman history or art we provide something that for, for them as well so um, it does take quite a lot of planning to make sure there's an even spread of activities mm. uh, over, over the year making sure that there are different things that different sorts of people will, will be will be interested in and we always have this problem that we obviously we do quite a lot of our events in London but we've been trying over the last few years to make sure that we have some events in different regions so that those people don't can't come to London or you know, don't come very often. They, they have something um, for their membership too. So we've tried to collaborate with various other groups, especially so the Archaeology Committee has been working on a sort of a regional programme over the last few years. So we've been quite quite successful in trying to have events in different different places. But you know, again, that's kind of quite challenging and logistically as as well, because otherwise. I have to race around the country <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of things to juggle alongside your own research as well. I mean, in terms of the the fundraising for the library, if, mm-hmm. uh, how do people go about donating to that, or how do people help out about that? I mean, you say, well. got various. Uh, I mean, I say towards the end, like as, as we kind of well, I suppose now as we as we do move towards wrapping up, I usually ask, do you have things to sell? But obviously, the kind of one the of the principal ones. Yeah. Yeah. just donate to the the. the, the well, I mean, we set up a dedicated uh, website, HellenicAndRomanLibrary.org, uh, where you can make a donation online, um, or you can set up a direct debit, um, or you can, you know, leave a legacy to the library. Mm. So there, there, there are lots of ways to do it. And, you know, we do say that, obviously, a donation, we're looking for individuals who can give, you know, a sizable donation, but actually, or, or institutions or whatever, organisations, but, you know, actually lots of individual donations small donations you know they all add up so very important 
if members and readers in the library can contribute even £10 or, mm-hmm. or whatever, actually it, it adds up. We, we've got an endowment now that that we've that we've started which is obviously invested funds and we also have a sort of annual annual giving scheme so quite a lot of people give a smaller man annually and you know that's great because every time someone gives it means that this annual sort of fund builds up and we use that to offset running costs which means we've got more money to spend on organizing events and the grant schemes and bursaries and all of that sort of thing so people giving to the even if people who you know don't use a library or, or whatever even if they give a donation to, to the library it just means that we've we're able to carry on with our with our other activities otherwise all of the available funds that we have 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 to, have to go towards keeping the library going so mm. yeah I, I guess the issue is well sometimes is perhaps when you've got something like the Roman Society that's been running for so long I guess people don't always kind of realise that it requires constant funding to keep going like, people think these kind of entities just exist and the, you know the, the, there's, the, there's always money there but unfortunately um that's not not really the case. Unfortunately, it's the same with quite a lot of societies. As you say now, yeah. there, there is there does seem to be a real kind of difficulty that just seems more apparent now than there used to be. I mean, that's me, but in like I just even notice it with local societies as well. That they need to kind of keep driving to, yeah. to keep to keep to keep making money and. Because people, I, mean, I suppose the the thing is with with things like this is it's in some respects it's an investment, isn't it? As you say, because what it is is that if you give money into to the Rome Society, the idea of the Rome Society is that you know you put on these events, you have the access to the library, you have the journals, etc. So it's not just simply giving something for nothing. You know, there is a lot that, that comes out of it. I mean, I wouldn't remember my PhD about the library. So <laughs> there you go. That's that, that's a testament. Um, how good my PhD was, I suppose, is debatable. <laughs> it's published now, so it must be. It must be. It must be. It must be pretty. Especially if you wrote it in the library. Yeah. Um, there's now two copies in the library as well. Um, so uh, yeah, so yeah. you see, it's worth it's worth it's worth joining the Rome Society and giving a donation to the library just so you can go and read your book in it. Yeah, yeah. If you want to find out Mithras, it's the it's the place to go. <laughs> um, so then, aside from the uh, aside from raising money for the for the society for, for the library, anything else that you want to promote at all? I mean, we touched on the fact that you've got the Justinian book on the horizon. I mean, I did look up online; it says it's supposed to be down in Jan- or January next year, or is that? Just uh, year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they've been saying January next year for <laughs> for for some time. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it'll be in January next year. It might be January the following year, but uh, yeah, my aim is to is to complete them complete it by the end of this summer um and then it should be out yeah. sometime after that <laughs> and the Anastasia's book is still available it's still yeah it's still avail- available well I think <laughs> there's a copy in the library <laughs> <laughs> and anything else at all you any uh, we talked about upcoming events anything else at all that you want to you want to get in do you have a Twitter account yeah yeah the Roman Society's got a Twitter account at the Roman Sock and we've got almost 16,000 followers now and we've also got um, Facebook book um, and we've got a YouTube channel and we record all of our um, lectures now and you can find that by just going to the Roman Society, romansociety.org website and then you can find all the lectures on YouTube from there. Great, thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.